Last Friday, a lone gunman burst in on two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, killing 50 people and injuring 50 more. The gunman is described as an eco-fascist who says he was inspired by other white nationalist extremists as well as his hatred of Muslims. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. We look at how intelligence agencies view these threats, how the shooting may change that view, and how the online community is connecting these individuals. Before we get to our conversation, I just want to say thanks to all of you who've given this podcast a listen over the last nine months. We hope you'll stick with us, so be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for the Washington Post. So, Shane, when it comes to monitoring threats like those posed by the shooter in Christchurch last Friday— How well do authorities monitor domestic terror groups or individuals compared to international groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda? Well, you have to look at it two ways. On a a country-by-country basis, you know, each country may be monitoring threats from domestic radicals quite well and quite aggressively. In the United States, the FBI has that job. In other countries, their domestic law enforcement or domestic security services would do that. But when it comes to the so-called Five Eyes countries, which are the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, that have spent the past 20 years building a really robust system to share information about foreign terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, they are not routinely sharing information about domestic threats within each of their own countries. That gets left to the individual departments or agencies. So you don't see a kind of comparable intelligence sharing going on with people like the New Zealand shooter as you do for members of what we traditionally call foreign terrorist organizations. You, when you look at attacks like the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting and the Quebec City mosque shooting and now the New Zealand shooting, These are all the work of lone individuals, but they tend to draw inspiration from one another. And you start to see, like with ISIS, people radicalized uh, through the Internet, through Twitter or YouTube or, or even Facebook groups. Does this elevate it to an international threat when it comes to intelligence gathering communities? It doesn't in an actual kind of practical day-to-day way. You haven't seen like a sudden shift in the way that these countries are now sharing information with each other because these threats are, are, you know, are being elevated on the internet. But people I talk to, current and former government officials, including in other countries, think that maybe it should. What the observation that they have is that these individuals and these groups they're, they're transcending national boundaries, finding each other via social media, becoming indoctrinated spreading their propaganda, and that the the national boundaries become less meaningful when you've got organizations that might be, you know, living in one country and carrying out attacks there, but also communicating with people in other places and maybe inspiring them to act. When we think about ISIS and its use of social media, there's a group that is based nominally in Syria. Mm -hmm. That's where it has its effectively its headquarters, but has reached out and radicalized or indoctrinated people in the United States, people in Great Britain and other countries and encouraged them to take action there. Um, If we start to see so-called domestic extremists operating that way, a lot of people kind of tear experts think that they're starting to look a lot more in that case like an international organization and that those borders are just less meaningful. As you were saying earlier, you know, countries would kind of work in silos when they're dealing with their own domestic terror threats. How currently would they be sharing information about possible 
uh, far right groups or, or extremist groups that are working independently within their own countries. So like in the United States today, you have the FBI with the primary lead on this, and they might also be getting information from the Homeland Security Department if it were monitoring, although in the United States, they've actually shut down a lot of that monitoring of right-wing groups. But you would have potentially you know, law enforcement and security agencies working together, sharing information internally um, to sort of the, to track the rise of these groups. And of course, if they thought that the, one of them was about to undergo or undertake some kind of attack or, or violence, local law enforcement would play a role in that too. I mean, a lot of these organizations that might be operating in certain communities presumably would be you know, at least uh, being watched or being uh, made aware to local law enforcement there. So it's kind of an internal domestic uh, kind of sharing. And, and you know, and there, are, there are protocols and procedures for all of that kind of thing, the same way that they would investigate uh, criminal rings for that mm-hmm. matter. I mean, the, the way that the United States tends to, t- tends to treat, you know, white nationalist groups is as criminal organizations. They don't see them so much as terrorist organizations, which has a different body of law that applies to that threat. Overall, what is the working relationship like with the U.S. and its allies, specifically in the Five Eyes group, when it comes to sharing information about international threats? It's a really robust relationship based on a lot of trust and mutual interest. The Five Eyes are sort of the uh, uh, the paragon of international sharing when it comes to intelligence, and it is an intelligence agency relationship. We're talking about you know the CIA's and the NSA's of these countries, not so much their FBI's. Um, but they really view each other as sort of companion services in some ways, um, like you know, like like uh, cousins all on the same fight. And in fact, the British and American relationship is even closer. It's almost more like siblings. People will describe it. So a lot of trust. They all know each other. Uh, they speak the same language. Obviously, they kind of have a common threat picture. And they've spent years building up, you know, these liaison relationships such that they can communicate very quickly and very effectively when it comes to international groups when it comes to things like weapons proliferators, terrorists, uh, information that they might have about uh, you know, North Korea or Iran or other sort of shared adversaries. And that's worked really well, but it's always with that kind of international focus, never with a, a, a nexus based around a domestic group, which traditionally gets treated more in the criminal context in the United States. Do we think that could change in the wake of what happened in Christchurch and in the wake of other incidents involving these kind of lone gunmen who have been radicalized online? It's possible. And it is a conversation that I think people are having. For it to really change in a formal way, though, would require the heads of government in each of these countries you know, making a decision to do that. And there would have to be some really careful examination of existing laws, particularly privacy laws and regulations that control for civil liberties in the United States and elsewhere to ensure that information was being handled properly and that we weren't you know, kind of unleashing an intelligence apparatus on our domestic population which is something that we've always tried to avoid in the United States. Um, I suspect what's likely to happen is that more at kind of a working level, I think that counterterrorism officials are going to start having conversations among themselves about how should we be thinking about domestic radical groups, and particularly domestic groups, so-called domestic groups that are finding common cause with each other on the internet and are banding together not based on their national identity or their country identity, but by their sort of nationalist identity or perhaps their shared 
um, uh, hatred for immigrants uh, or their shared suspicion of Islam. There it starts to look something like transcends boundaries and I could at the very least see counterterrorism officials starting to have conversations about what more they might be doing to address that. Has there been any talk in the intelligence community about how to uh, monitor or deal with um, some of the radicalization that that happens online, uh, sharing of videos, or even in the case of Christchurch, the sharing of the actual act as a live video online? Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion with that as it relates particularly to, to ISIS, um, which has been so effective. Uh, its use of social media, both to recruit and to indoctrinate people, but also to spread propaganda through social media. We can think back a few years ago to when ISIS was uh, filming these um, these executions and beheadings of, of Western hostages that they were holding. That, of course, went viral on the internet, and you know companies had to really scramble to try and tamp them down and eliminate them, and it was kind of a losing battle. So there has been a lot of discussion within the community around that that largely comes down to trying to pressure social media companies to do more to police the content. And and you saw this too with the Christchurch shooting where the social media companies really had to move fast to try and pull these videos down and to block them. But in that case, it appears that the shooter kind of understood how to, if you like, rig some of the content to kind of encourage it to go viral. Mm -hmm. uh, and just as quickly as these companies were trying to tamp it down, there were other places like, you know, uh, online channels like 8chan and other places where white supremacists congregate saying, you know, quick, make copies of them in case these sites end up taking them down. So the, the content moved faster in that sense, in that example, than the companies could to get rid of it. Are you surprised that given that the Christchurch shooter and as we've talked about this radicalization spreading online, that the tactics used by some of these far right extremists or anti-Islamic extremists are using similar tactics to groups like ISIS when it comes to spreading their message, that they aren't uh, handled in similar fashion by the intelligence community? It's surprising. And I think the intelligence community recognizes certainly the, the common issues and the common techniques that a group like ISIS is using that a white nationalist group might be using as well when it comes to the internet. The problem comes, if you take the U.S. perspective, is that there are certain rules and authorities that they have for when they can monitor and try and respond to groups like ISIS that are outside the United States. Mm -hmm. And there are much, much stricter controls when an organization is operating within the United States. You know, even if you just wanted to to be monitoring these organizations, there are different rules and procedures and even laws that come into play. Traditionally, the U.S. intelligence community has focused on the, the external threat and the domestic law enforcement focuses on the internal one. Now, they communicate a lot, but again, they tend to communicate closely around foreign terrorist organizations. So, an ISIS trying to do things to the United States as opposed to a white nationalist group or a right-wing extremist group or a militia group trying to do things here. But I think that, you know, as the internet starts to bring all of these groups together in different countries, that could change. I mean, certainly that conversation is happening now where people in the intelligence community are seeing the same kinds of patterns of radicalization and spreading of propaganda happening in a foreign context as they are among right-wing nationalists and other, national, other extremist groups in the United States. Looking at this from an outsider's perspective, it may not be a, a the fairest of assessment, but it appears that the current administration and the current president doesn't necessarily take as seriously people like the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter or Dylan Roof, who, who killed a, a number of people in a, in a Southern church. 
uh, as he does countries like Iran or, or groups like ISIS. How does the U.S. intelligence community get past that obstacle? It's going to be very hard. If, if there's anything that the intelligence community wants to do more or to strengthen working with the FBI uh, or foreign partners around this threat of, of domestic extremism, you're going to have a lot of obstacles to that because the president of the United States uh, has you know, praised neo-Nazi groups in the sense that he has come, you know, he has said that there are fine people among them as he did after the Charlottesville protests that resulted in one death. Uh, he was asked over the weekend in the Oval Office about whether or uh, not he uh, thought that right-wing extremism and white nationalism in the United States was a growing problem. And he said no, uh, when it, I think manifestly is. And I think anybody you talk to in law enforcement or the intelligence community would agree that it's becoming a bigger problem, not that it's diminishing. So as long as the head of government doesn't have, you know, doesn't share the assessment that there's that there is a growing threat here. I don't think you're likely to see big policy changes to address that. You might at the more working level see more conversations happening where information may be being shared kind of informally about broader trends. But I don't think you're going to see a reworking of the system that we have now that works really well in the foreign context and retooling it anyway towards domestic. I mean put aside all of the ways that Congress would want to get involved with that too. It starts at the top, and there is just no indication at all that the president would welcome any kind of change in focus because that would be acknowledging that there's a problem. Well, it certainly is a troubling issue, and I imagine we haven't heard the last of stories like this, unfortunately, as we go forward. Shane, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Special thanks to my guest, Shane Harris of The Washington Post. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.